0: last five minutes of the class last week, so that I'll do at this at this time. And from there we'll continue on to this week's portion of the week. What we said in summation last week was that there are two basic kings or two basic rulers or leaders in the human being. And that is his heart and his mind. The Malacha Adam, the intelligence, the intellect, of man and the Lev Adam in the heart of man. We explained rather at great length last week that both of them have advantages and features in terms of a person's worship of God. A person's worship of God coming from the sources of heart would show themselves in terms of tefillah, they would show themselves in terms of prayer. They would show themselves in terms of a fervor, intensity of action, content of action. That would be the lave ha'adam that would show itself and display itself in the worship of God. While the intellect of man, in terms of his worship of God, would possibly be delving into reasons, developing Torah thought, becoming knowledgeable in Torah thought, and approaching questions of life from a Torah perspective and not only from an emotional standpoint. Now, it is not to negate the value of the emotions of the human being, but if a person works out of emotion alone without necessarily having the backup knowledge of how he should feel or how his different feelings should be directed and used, it can be a very difficult situation. On the other hand, a person that operates in his Judaism simply as an intellectual gymnastic is also engaged in a meaningless endeavor because ultimately what Judaism is supposed to be is coming close to God. And coming close to God needs not only the intellect and the seichel ha'adam, the intelligence of man, but it needs the total person. And the emotional makeup and the personality of the human being is extremely essential in that form of total worship. What we explained last week was that Yehuda was the personification of the lave. He was the personification of the heart. And in that virtue he was promised royalty later on in Jewish history. At its earliest point Jacob blessed Yehuda with royalty, but it would only come up later on in our history. On the other hand, Yosef was a personification of objective intellect. In other words, intellect that is not controlled by desire, but is a pure and straight intellect. What we call Seichel Hanivdo, the pure intellect. An intellect that can only be arrived at when a person demands of himself tremendous self-controls in his personal life. And he's the Seichel Hanivdo and by that virtue he is also a king in his right. We pointed out last week that the way royalty was to develop within the Jewish people would be Yosef first, Yehuda second. In other words, the melech, the king for Golis, the king of Golis of the exile would be Yosef. Yosef had to go down to Egypt. Yosef had to withstand the tremendous... Spiritual struggles that Egypt presented and to remain aloof of all the desires that Egypt stood for. And he developed a seichal hanivdol. He developed that pure intellect. And he paved the way for the Jew to be able to go down to Egypt, live in Egypt, withstand the pressures of Egypt, social and otherwise, and sur meirah, to develop that tremendous quality of identifying spiritual danger, creating the proper forces in oneself to be able to resist those spiritual dangers. That was Yosef. And in all intention, Yosef expected and wanted to afterwards give the reins of power to Yehuda. He never intended that he would be the king and royalty would stay in his family forever. He was the cleanup man. He was the one that was going to be the Sur Meirah. He was going to remove all the negative elements, an important component in our Hashem. Before we approach God, we have to clean cleanse ourselves, the Sur Meirah. And after the Sur Meirah, then Yehuda would be coming in with all the positive performance known to Yehud. This is basically what we said. And what we ended off with was that we learned from this particular episode of Yosef and Yehuda we learn a very interesting thing. Here we have two kings, one of heart, one of mind. We need both, but they were designated to two particular times in our history. Yosef is the king of Golis, and Yehuda is the king when we are out of Golis. So they are designated to times. The Shalah HaKadosh, a commentary, explains that in the future time when we will when we will be worthy of the final redemption we will also go through a period of time of two kings two Mashiach two kinds of Mashiach one Mashiach ben Yosef who will come first who will basically do the same kind of function that Yosef did in Egypt and afterwards we will have the second Mashiach from the Divinic dynasty from Malchus based David this is what we spoke about last week the said, the practical aspect of all of this, history, past, and future, the practical aspect of this was that we pointed out at the end of the class that many people can approach Judaism from an emotional standpoint. In other words, either that they are not satisfied in their own lives <clears throat> or there are certain problems emotionally that they cannot contend with. And because of that, Judaism becomes the safe haven for their emotions. <clears throat> now upgrading that one level, you can have a person involved in Judaism not as a haven, but because he recognizes the values of Judaism. But again, he's only relating from an emotional standpoint. Emotionally, Judaism sits with him. He, in other words, the things that he does does not upset his emotional balance the way he feels and the way he thinks about various things seem to fit with the directives of Judaism and his performance is an emotional performance. You will find that person being a person that will daven, he will pray and he might pray with a tremendous amount of kavanah. He might choose various mitzvahs that are very hearty kind of mitzvahs like charity and chesed and various other mitzvahs that are very emotionally involved mitzvahs. And that's his Judaism, the beginning and the end. And what we pointed out last week, that that form of Judaism, while it's extremely meaningful and it can be very inspiring, is not sufficient for a Jew in Gullis. Because the Jew in Gullis, if he is only rooted in his Judaism based in emotion... <clears throat> emotions are fickle, emotions can change. Circumstances and, and strong circumstances can bring out from a person emotions that he doesn't necessarily know how to contend with. So, if a person feels, I'm very strong in Judaism and I feel very satisfied emotionally with my performance of Judaism, that's still not enough. There must be introduced into the Judaism of a person an intellectual understanding of what he's doing, an involvement in Torah knowledge and Torah wisdom. Start investigating how the rabbis thought about different aspects of life. Try to understand their viewpoint as a viewpoint and not just as an emotional experience with what's happening. And this is very important <clears throat> because there are many things that play in our lives. Our lives are ups and downs. and for a person whose Judaism is based in emotion, a person always is presented with certain circumstances and struggles that make his emotions go up and down. One day he feels like getting up, one day he doesn't feel like getting up. We know what this is all about. This is, this is the life of every human being. We are swung by moods and emotions. So if a person's Judaism is only based in that and he doesn't try to develop some firm foundations in terms of intellectual development and trying to understand the Seichel HaTorah, how does Torah view and how does God view certain circumstances and situations, he might find himself in trouble. The proof being that which of the two kings do we have for Gullis, the Yehuda or the Yosef? So, if you would ask a person in the street, we would say, oh, come on, In Golis, you expect that the Jew should develop intellectually. Be happy enough if his heart develops and he's a cardiac Jew. Be happy with that. What do you want? What are you expecting from people with no backgrounds? You're expecting of them intellectual development that they should... So the answer is no. Look in the Chumash. The Chumash says that the Melech for Golis is Yisef, not Yehuda. And it's a big mistake. Some people want to look away from all the areas that Joseph had to tackle with, and they say, okay, all my vices and all my negative elements, those things I can't do anything about. And what I'll do is I'll dive in and I'll do nice things and I'll be emotionally involved. But the other part that needs work and needs intellectual approach that a person shuns away from, it's the harder job naturally, but we learn from the portions of the Torah that." the, the, the uh, development of the Jew through Galat needs a Yosef and that means that every one of us has to try to be some form of a Yosef in our own lives this is what we said last week <clears throat> and continuing along this vein of thought I would like to begin discussing Parashas Vayechi now when I start discussing Parashas Vayechi we are finishing the book of Breshas Baruch Hashem We've come a long way, and I think we've learned quite a bit. <coughs> but I want to remind everybody here something that we said, the very first per- portion that we learned bracious. The first portion that we did, to be perfectly honest, was not Bracious. It was Noah. And I remember that, and I'm a Baaiv. I know, I owe it to you. We'll get to Bracious. But we mentioned, in Pasius Noah, the first thing that we mentioned was that the book of Bratius is a Sefer Yitzira, It's a book of creation, not only by virtue of the fact that the first two chapters of the book discuss the creation of the world, but because every event that happened in the book of Bratius was a foundation, if not in a physical way, in a spiritual way, for everything that would go happen later on in our history. The tremendous Mesiras Nefsh, the giving of life, at the Akedah, when Abraham took Isaac to the altar, was the development of Mesiras Nefesh, of giving one's life to sanctify God's name. And today the Jew has that spiritual quality within him because of his father Abraham. And so, through every event in the book of Breshis, and we examined a number of them, they were creations, spiritual creations. Parshas Vayechi, is no exception Parshas Vayechi is a Sefer of yitzira. it's a story of creation but it's a story of creation that is very pertinent in terms of Gullus and in particular our attitude towards Gullus and I must start with a remark an introductory remark a self-defense remark <coughs> some of the things that I'm going to say between now and when the tape runs out will be rather provocative. And some of you, and I know this from experience, some of you might interpret various things that I will be saying in certain ways. I beg of you not to interpret anything until the end. And then when you do interpret it, clear it with me first. Because there is a quick decision that people make based upon one or two pieces of information that I'm going to be discussing this evening, and that is at all not my intention. This shir has no political overtones. I am not a political person. I want to project a certain Torah attitude. Again, like we said before, our attitudes are not only developed from an emotional base, but they have to be developed from a Torah base as well. And being developed from a Torah base will make life more meaningful. (coughs) Vayachi starts off, Vayachi Yaakov Be'erets Mitzrayim Shvah Ezre Shona. Yaakov lived in Egypt 17 years. The last 17 years of his life, he lived in Egypt. Those last 17 years of his life are very interesting years. They are the best years of, of Yaakov's life, of Jacob's life. The Tanah de Valiyo tells us that those last 17 years, Yaakov was meritus of having no Yetsahara, having no inc- evil inclination or any negative elements to contend with. His life was a life that was basically ein olam haba, something similar to existence in olam haba. And all of this Yaakov experienced in the Holy Land, quote-unquote, of Egypt. There are various questions with that particular event. It would, rather, it would seem rather odd that Yaakov, the holy person that he was, would experience the highest spiritual plateaus in his life in a place like Egypt. After all, a basic idea of what Egypt was like we already got from the past classes it wasn't exactly the holiest of places on earth. In fact, it was the exact opposite. And to assume that Jacob should experience in his last 17 years, experiences, quote unquote, experience quote-unquote olam Habadik experience, world-to-come experience, is in such a place, seems to be completely out of order. What would we suggest? Not that Yaakov shouldn't have a good time. Chas v'shalem. He deserves to have at least some time good. But why in Egypt? Why does he reach his highest spiritual levels in such a place? This is a question. And another question, was there any particular event in Jacob's life that made this dramatic change in his last 17 years? We know Jacob as a person that lived from day one till 130 with Tsaris the problems with Joseph the problems with Dina the problems with Asaph, the pro- problems with love and a life of problems and we explained a long time ago that he had Yisurim he had what it was called the different levels of spiritual travail in his life which were all intended for his development and for the future development of the spiritual genes of the Jewish people but that was his life he wasn't a person that sat back and had a good time. What happened at age 130 that Hakarish Baruch Hu now decided, Yaakov, you've had enough, and the next 17 years you're going to have a life of bliss? Where is the change? We assume that there was a purpose in the kind of life that he led till 130. Why at that point did it change? Become a life of Olam Haba. <laughs> don't get me wrong; not to say in any way that I I don't I don't uh, forgive him, <laughs> that I don't want to give Yaakov the 17 good years. But what makes that change in life purpose that the last 17 years are tremendously good years. <coughs> now we know that the way a parsha is structured, if you look in a Sefer Torah, if you look in a Torah. Torah scroll there is the space of nine letters between portions of the Torah the space of what would be written nine letters is left between two portions of the Torah with one exception at the end of Vayigash which was last week's portion to the beginning of Vayichi which is this week's portion there is no space left and this is called a Parsha This is called a portion which is closed. In other words, there is no open space between the two portions. The reason, by the way, why a certain amount of space is left between two portions is is a suggested educational skill. You finish the portion. Hold off one second. Don't run into the next portion yet. Review what you have learnt. Understand better what you have learnt give yourself some space to think and then go on to the next portion and it's actually structured into the Torah scroll in that way a space to tell you create some space think about what you learned before you go on to the next portion when it comes over here to Parshat Vayechi for some reason we're in a big rush and there's no space and this is Rashi's problem at the beginning of Parshat Vayechi at the beginning of Parshat Loma parasha zu stuma Why is there no space left from the end of Ayyigash to the beginning of Ayyichi? Why? So Rashi says two answers which are very similar. Rashi says Lfi Kishenifter Yaakov when Yaakov was going to pass away in which this is the portion in which he's going to pass away from the world Nistumu Eneim V'libam shel Yisrael The hearts and the minds of the Jewish people became closed. they began not to understand what was happening. They were going into the darkness of exile. And the events that would be occurring in exile would be quote-unquote unexplainable. The eyes or the mind could not understand and the heart could not tolerate the pains of Gullis. And because the eyes and the hearts and minds became closed because of all the sorris, all the problems of Gullus, we try to symbolize that event by closing the beginning of the portion and not leaving the open space. This is one reason. Rashi says a second reason. Rashi says that before Yaakov passed away from this world he called together his twelve children and he wanted to reveal to them the time that Mashiach would come. And a moment before he was to reveal to them the time that Mashiach would come God took away the divine inspiration from Jacob and he was not able to communicate this information to his children. It was at this point that Yaakov turned to his children and was suspect (laughs) that maybe one of his children was not worthy of having to know this information. And he questioned them and said, is there anybody here that holds an ideological gripe against God? Is there anybody here that has some kind of a question about God? who he is, what he is, what he does, what his purpose for creation is. Is there any question of faith? And the answer that came from his children is the answer that we say twice a day, Shema Yisrael, hear, O Father Yisrael, the children who are addressing their Father, Hashem Alekeinu, God is our God, Hashem Echad. When Yaakov heard this in delight, he answered, Baruch Kevod Kivod, Al Olam V'ed. May God's name be spread and glorified forever and ever in the world. This is the little event. Now, because Yaakov had this this blackout in which the divine inspiration did not allow him to communicate the last events of history of Mashiach's times, so the parasha is closed to teach us that particular event. Another reason for why the parasha is closed. By the way, we are told that the basic reason why Jacob wanted to reveal the time of Mashiach's coming which doesn't seem to need a reason, but the reason that the commentaries explain to us is he was not going to give us a precise date when Mashiach was going to come. That wasn't the intention. What Yaakov wants to do was review events of of subsequent exiles and show how they are building blocks, how they are building blocks towards the coming of Mashiach. We do not understand Major portions of our history are productive or constructive elements towards bringing Mashiach. We don't. And the most we can do is fall back with partial reasons and partial faith in believing that they are building blocks. But we don't have a full understanding. Yaakov wanted to give that full understanding to his children, and God said, I want them to live through Gullis with faith and not necessarily understanding from A to Z everything of Gullus. So, the beginning of the portion, in its being closed, is a personification of God closing the explanations of Gullus and saying that you don't necessarily on an intellectual level understand today all the reasons for the constructive purposes of Gullus. And I don't want you to necessarily understand it on an intellectual level what I expect from you is to march forward in Gullus with a certain basic faith that will bring the Jew closer and closer eventually to God to the point that he will understand. This is basically, this is basically what's happening here. The question that's asked is that there are many ways of communicating the information of the news blackout of Yaakov There are many ways of communicating the fact that the heart and mind of the Jew closed with the beginning of exile. And to upset the esoteric beauty of the space that's left between two portions of the Torah seems to be rather out of place. You'd have to look in the Torah scroll, make the distinction that there's space left here, and then say, oh, you know what it's coming to tell me? It's coming to tell me that there was a blackout of divine inspiration, or that the Jews' heart and mind became closed at the beginning of those. It seems to be a rather awkward and indirect way of communicating such a piece of information. (coughs) Just one more, just one more piece of Chumash. In last week's Parish in Parsha's Vayigash, The passages go through a very detailed description of how Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And the way the passage breaks it up is almost like a machitza in a shul. What do I mean by this? The pasik, the verse says that Jacob went down with his sons and with the sons of his sons with him, and with his daughters and with the daughters of his daughters he took them also along I'm paraphrasing it into English this is the way the verse goes and the Arachayim HaKadosh one of the commentaries in the Chumash asks the following question we believe in the Chitzos and we believe in all this keeping things separate at different times but when Yaakov is going down and the verse is describing how the family is going down come on, we're talking about brothers and sisters and we're talking about cousins What's the point of the verse splitting it that way, of putting the sons and the grandsons, the daughters and the granddaughters, in those two different categories? And then when it comes to the sons, we say he took them with him, and then as an extra inclusion, he took his daughters and his granddaughters also with him. All right? seems to be very much against women's lib, that kind of a way of structuring the pasach. And this is a question, why is it that way? Little you think this is nitpicking here you'll see soon that it's far from nitpicking so I must learn with you a piece of Gemara that's the truth and the only reason why I'm going to say that it's from the Gemara and quote it from the Gemara is because you won't believe me otherwise there's a Gemara at the end of Ksubas right? it's your Gemara just as much as it's mine the Gemara says the following thing there was a fellow and this is where things get provocative so hold on to your seats the Gemara says at the end of Ksubos, okay, and I'll explain everything, so don't get so angry. I'm not going to listen to another word this guy's going to say. Please be patient. The Gemara at the end of Ksubos says the following thing. The Gemara says that there was a person, I believe it was Ribzeira, that wanted to leave Bavo. This was in the period of the Babylonian exile. He wanted to leave Bavo and go back to Eretzisra. no why not? He wanted to. And this particular travel arrangement did not find favor in another one of the sages mind in fact (coughs) the Gemara tells us that Reb wanted to go to Eretz Yisrael and he knew that Reb Yehuda who was either his his teacher or a very close friend of his did not want him to go to Eretz Yisrael and in fact forbade him from going to Eretz So, what do you do in that kind of a circumstance? You try to avoid him. So, Reb tried to avoid Reb Yehuda and made his travel plans to go to Eretz <coughs> So, the Gemara says, what was Reb Yehuda's opinion that you're not allowed to leave Babylon and go back to Eretz Why not? So, he quotes a certain verse in the Prophets that seems to suggest that for the 70 years that we were in Gullus, we were supposed to stay there. And we didn't have the liberty to leave at will. So, Rebzeria comes along and says, Rebzeria was also not a person that would just push it off, just to go to Eretz Israel. If there's a verse, there's a verse, and you have to know what to do with the verse. All right? You just don't shove it under a carpet. So, Rebzeria said that the reference to certain vessels that were taken into captivity, into Babylon... And those vessels were not supposed to be returned. But if an individual wanted to leave Babylon and go to Israel, there was nothing that would prevent him from doing so. This was Reb opinion. So Reb Yehuda bounces back and Reb Yehuda says, you're right on that account. That particular verse in the Prophets is speaking about the Klesharis, it's speaking about the vessels of the Holy Temple. It is not speaking about individuals. But I would like to quote another verse for you a verse in the Song of Songs. What is that verse? So that verse is, I swear unto you, daughters of Jerusalem, this is a reference to the Jewish people, literally this means in the name of Tzvakos, or in the name of Kael, in the two names of God, I swear unto you that you should not Try to activate my desire for your being in Israel, being in Eretz Israel, until I so desire. This is the verse that he quoted. By the way, there are two interpretations, historical interpretations to this verse, that refer to earlier periods of our history. One is to when God made the decree on the spies that they should not go. And they went, nevertheless. And then it was decreed that that generation would die in the desert. After they cried and they said, "We're terribly sorry for what they did." God said, "You still can't go." They did not listen, and they attempted going. And they met a military people from the tribe of Ephraim that had a different calculation when the Jew was supposed to leave Egypt, 30 years prior to when we did. And they went, and they argued with Moses and they said they were right Moses said they were wrong and they went out on their own and they were killed in the desert because they got, went out before the time so these are two events where the Jew goes out before the time quote unquote, and he meets defeat because it's not the proper time this is in the past Reb is now quoting this verse as a directive to the future Rabzera, I don't want you to leave Babylon and go to Eretz Israel because of this verse. Now, Rabzera interprets this, and Rabzera says the following thing. Rabzera says that I want to explain to you the history of this verse and why it does not apply to my situation. The history of this verse is as follows. Please listen carefully. There were three unstated but understood oaths that were made between God the rest of the world and the Jewish people three oaths Shalosh what are those Shalosh shvuos? one of them and now I'm quoting the Gemara and anybody that wants to get hot wait till you see the Gemara the Gemara says one oath is Shalayim Shalayalu bechama that the Jew should not go up as a unified force back into Eretz Israel before God says so. That's one oath. The second oath, <laughs> that the Jew should not rebel in a unified way against all the other nations of the world while they're in Golis, while they're in exile. Those are two of the oaths. The third oath, is an oath that was made between the Jew and the rest of the world and that third oath is that even though we will be in their countries under their rule under their sovereignty that they should not take advantage of us being in Golis in an extreme way now obviously the oath was not made directly with the president of any country but when God makes this oath, what God is saying is as follows. You keep your two oaths of not come going in a unified force back to Eretz Israel until I ask you to, and don't rebel against the countries that you're living in in a unified way. And if you keep those two promises or those two understandings with me, I will make sure that the rest of the world does not... Overexert exert their power and their oppression upon you these two oaths are the answer for the third you keep your side of the bargain with your two commitments and I will make sure to keep a check system on them with theirs this is the, this is the system let's interpret the v- verse I swear unto you daughters of Jerusalem alright don't activate in any way a movement either to rebel against the nations that you live in and the second time it says is a reference to going up in a unified way back to Eretz Israel. don't do those two things <coughs> All right? until I give you the signal and if you do do it God says if you go and you take it upon yourself to do what I'm asking you not to do I will make you as cheap and as prey as the animals in the fields the tzvaos and the ayolos are various animals in the fields this is what the Gemara says what is the Gemara teaching us what is the Gemara teaching us the Gemara is teaching us like this and please let's take this very slowly and try to understand this in a sensitive way what the Gemara is saying is like this a Jew believes and knows deep down that everything that happens in in our history God is involved we might not understand where God is involved in every event of history but there is a God and he's involved. He knows what's happening and he has a direction for Gullus. He has a direction. And he comes with a request to us and he says to us, there is a point in your history when you will be ready to go back to Eretz Yisrael, but there are certain events of history that must interplay between you and the nations. There must be certain developments that occur with you and with the rest of the world before that event can be meaningful of course you can go back again but this time you're going back to stay not to go back and be chased out a third time the third time is the permanent time and for that the determination of when is the right moment and when the development that is necessary has arrived to go back that's a decision that God's making and God says don't meddle with my history don't meddle with the plans. This is one area where I'm asking you to stay out and don't put yourself in the position of deciding when the moment is. The moment I will decide. Now, if a person does not want to accept this Gemara or does not want to accept these oaths, we'll explain this further and further, but if a person doesn't want to accept it, it comes from one of two things. It either comes From a lack of belief that there is a God in this world or even if there is a God in this world he certainly doesn't know how to run his world it's one or the other but if a person assumes that there is a God and that God knows what he's doing and God says I have the events planned in a certain way and please don't jump the gun quote unquote don't jump the gun until I give the signal that it's time to go and the person says, no, that's not acceptable to me, he is questioning God's jurisdiction or the, or the value of God's judgment. Now, the, the, the way the, the decision goes is as follows. God says the following thing. If you want to trust me as running this world, so you're in my hands and then they can't do with you what they would like to do with you, the rest of the nations. I'll hold them. But if you want to free yourself from my connections to the world and you want to say, I'll run this world the way I want and God, keep out of here. I know how to do things best for myself. So what God says is, kolakavot. If that's what you want, you want me to move out and you want to take it into your hands, fine, take it into your hands, but then you're left prey to some very wild elements in the world. In other words, there is a play here of Hashgacha. Do you want my involvement? You have my involvement, and my involvement means my protection to a certain degree. Do you not want my involvement? So I won't be involved. But then you have to deal with some very wild elements. This is the play. Let me dis- say another story, which will develop the thought a bit further. There's a story in the Gemara in Brachis, and it's a very beautiful story. The Gemara says that Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Yossi, who lived a generation after Rebbe Kiva, Rebbe Kiva lived to see the destruction of the temple. Rabbi Yossi was a disciple of Rebbe Kiva a generation later. Rabbi Yossi was once walking through the ruins of Jerusalem, and it came the time to daven. So here he's in the middle of a highway, it's time to daven. So what do you say, I'm busy, no davening? No, that's not the way it goes, you daven. You have to daven. So he figured, if I'll stay on the road, I'll be in the middle of Shemun and somebody's going to be behind me, honking his horn, Get out of you, get out of my way, I have to go someplace. So he didn't want to be disturbed, so what he did is he went into one of the ruins of Jerusalem, there he certainly wasn't going to be disturbed by anybody, he went into one of the ruins of Jerusalem and began to pray. Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet, comes and waits for him by the entrance to the ruin until he's finished praying. When he's finished praying after going through the formal greetings, Hello, Shalom alecha, Shalom alecha, Rabbi, Eliyahu Hanavi says to Rabbi Yaisi, You've done something wrong. What have you done wrong? A person is not permitted to go into a ruin. On the very simple level, this was understood as being a dangerous thing to do. Either because the building would collapse, or because people that were not of the highest caliber used to hide out in those places, or because there were different spirits in ruins that could be detrimental to a person... But well, that was something that wasn't done. So Anavi says, Ahanavi says, You're not permitted to go into a ruin. It's a dangerous thing. So Rabbi Yaisi said, I had to daven. So Elio Anavi said, You should have davened on the road. So Rabbi Yaisi said, Yeah, but if I would have davened on the road, I would have been disturbed by the people that passed by on the road. So Elio Anavi said, So then you should have davened in a bridged version of the Shmona Esrei. And the Gemara explains the abridged version. So the Gemara ends off and the Gemara says the following thing. Rabbi Yossi says, And on that occasion, I learned three things from at that time. What did I learn? I learned that you're not permitted to go into one of the ruins of Jerusalem. And I learned... <coughs> that a person is permitted if the circumstances are such he's permitted to daven in the middle of the road All right. obviously he should get himself out of the way of cars Yeah, he can daven in the middle of the road and and if you do have to daven along the road daven in a bridged version of the Shemun Asri these were the three things that he learned the Ein Yaakov who is one of our greatest commentaries on these pieces of Gemara, which are called Agadita, explains that while this definitely has a very literal translation, which we've just rendered, there is a deeper meaning to this entire episode. And the Anyakov yaakov says as follows, Reb Yossi lived a generation after Rebekiva. Rebekiva lived through and after the destruction of the temple. A good hundred years passed since the destruction of the temple. Rabbi Yossi wanted to daven that Gullus should end. Gullus should end. And in a figure of speech did not mean that they were going into one of the ruins of Yerushalayim, but what it meant was he wanted it to enter into the theological questions of destruction and put God on trial for what he's done in Gullus. In other words, that kind of an idea. Now, Rabbi Yaisi was a very great person and he wasn't consciously accusing God of anything. But his approach at this particular point in history was that Gullus has no meaning, has no positive purposes, and I am going to pray and insist that God takes us out of Gullus. That's what Nichnasim L'Chorva means. It doesn't mean walking into a ruin, but it means walking into the theological question of the value of destruction. And Eliyahu Hanavi told him, "Ei nichnasin lechurva," that a Jew in Gullis doesn't have the right, and it's a dangerous endeavor for a Jew to enter into those theological questions of churva. It's a dangerous thing. Ei nichnasin, don't go in. So Rabbi Yaisi replied, and Rabbi Yaisi said, "I had to daven." And if I would have davened on the road, I would have been disturbed by all the negative forces of gullus. And Elioah says, I don't care. What you should have done is, you should have prayed along the way. And the Anya'kov explains, what does this mean, praying along the way? So the Enyakov says, Golis is a way. It's a derech. That God, for reasons that we not necessarily understand fully, has selected a way in which the Jew must develop. He must develop through events of Golis. It's a derech. And Elio Anobi told Reb Yaisi, you should dab in primarily, that you should be able to have the strength to address the spiritual struggles of Golis. That's what a person's primary purpose in prayer should be. Recognize the dangers and ask for the spiritual assistance to rise up above the spiritual struggles of Gullus. Don't stand in front of me and pray, take me out of this. It's more important to stand and ask God for the insight of what's happening, what are the dangers, what are the struggles, and the assistance to be able to learn from Gullus, build from Gullus, develop from Gullus that God has put us into. This is what he said. So Rabbi said that's very nice but I was afraid I was afraid I was afraid that staying in Golis and not just insisting to get out of it would be too dangerous an endeavor because there are constant elements that stop you along the way I was. Ast- I didn't see that this was the way so Eliyoha Nabi answered and Eliyoha said, said you should not daven long tfilos prayers that mean nothing to you and that you don't know what they mean daven a few words a few sincere words let a tear fall at feeling the burden of a spiritual struggle and say to God give me the help to be able to resist that spiritual struggle you don't have to daven long tfilos short ones but ones in which you ask for the insight to recognize the dangers and the courage and the stamina to be able to withstand them and rise above them. So Rabbi Yaisi said, I learned from Eliya HaNavi who is the one that will announce Mashiach. I learned three things from Eliya HaNavi. I learned from him that the approach of the Jew is not to say, oh, Golis is terrible. It is. But to say that I don't want to recognize what it is, I don't want to learn what it is, I don't know I don't want to know the way it challenges me, I just will live through it for whatever it is and just hope that to tomorrow will be better, that's not the derech That's not the derech Don't question. In other words, don't in other words, to want to run away from it and not accept it and see it for what it is and what it's trying to ask of me. That's not the derech. And he told them, don't go into Churvis. Don't stop grubbing. Don't start digging with your fingers trying to figure out all kinds of... It's more important to recognize what it is demanding of us on a personal level. See it for what it is in front of you. What is it telling you? What is it trying to develop in you? And daven in that way. You're concerned that you won't be able to do it? Eliyahu Novi says, no Jew has to have that concern. He has prayer, he has tefillah, and those tefillahs are the deepest tefillahs that a Jew can pray. I accept the gullus without necessarily understanding why every single piece of gullus is such a building block, but God, give me the insight to know what's happening. Give me the insight to know what's playing against me. Give me the insight and the strength to know how to develop, learn from it and build from it in my own life. This is what he learned from Eliyahu <coughs> the truth of the matter is that to put it into a couple of words would be saying that what I'm talking about is a certain acceptance of Gullus now when I say accepting Gullus I do not mean to say that the person says oh okay, yeah I'm in Gullis. it's God's fault and whatever I do it's not my fault he stuck me here He should have known better and that's the end of it That's not what I mean by accepting Gullus. What I mean by accepting Gullus is to recognize the fact that for various things in our history, we are put into a sphere of spiritual alienation. Certain things have been taken away from us for reasons. Why were they taken away? What is missing in my life? And the things that are missing in my life are the things that today make those struggles of Gullus that difficult. What can I do in my life that will help me target those weaknesses, improve upon those weaknesses, resist the Gullis that I live in, and ultimately gain from the Gullis experience? What can I do? And to daven for that insight and for the strength to be able to pursue that. The Arachayim HaKadosh says that when Yaakov went down to Egypt, When Yaakov went down to Egypt, there were two factions within his family. When Yaakov went down to Egypt, he knew what was starting. He knew that 210 years of bitter Gullus were beginning. He knew it. And he could have had the natural feeling, who needs it? I'm not going to go on my own two feet down to Gullus. And after he met Yosef, he could have packed his bags and gone back to eretz Canaan but he knew that the historical process required a gullus. It needed gullus. Yaakov knew good and well that it needed a gullus. And he accepted God's judgment as hard as it would be. He accepted it upon himself and his sons went along and accepted with simcha, with happiness, what God wanted of them. On the other hand, it could very well be that the women recognized the dangers of Gaulus more than the men did and they did not want to go. His daughters and his granddaughters did not want to go and they had to be coerced to go down to Gaulus. And that's why they're broken in the Pasuk. They're separated into two categories. But the Arachayim HaKadosh says and this is not in a negative way. It could very well be that it was a more difficult test for them to want because they might have been more sensitive to the problems of Gullus. But the Arachayim says something interesting. And this is really the most powerful part of this entire concept. The Arachayim says that our rabbis tell us that as long as one of the 70 original people that went down to Egypt was alive, no real oppression began. As long as any member of the first, the original 70 went down, there was no. Severe oppression. So normally we understand this and we interpret this as a pat on the back. They were such righteous people nothing started while they were around. So the Arachai Makodesh asks that there were two exclusions to this rule. The oppressions of Golis started while Yochevet and Sarak Bas Asher were still alive. They were two women that had gone down to Golis with the original seventy. And the oppression did start in their time. And Arachayim says an interesting answer. He says the reprieve of Gullus was for those that understood that Gullus was a communication and accepted it with Simcha. For the Jew that understands that Golis is a development tool, he might be living in Golis, but he's developing and in a certain sense he's free of Gullus. But for the Jew that wants to... Run away from it, doesn't want to face what it's saying. In their time, the Gullus started. In other words, to a certain degree, the acceptance of Gullus and accepting the challenge of Gullus is, in a sense, freeing oneself of the elements of Gullus, while not wanting to accept it, not wanting to face it, and wanting always to run away from it makes you more vulnerable to all the elements of Gullus. That's a very broad statement but it has has historical backing. Not wanting to accept what's happening with you doesn't free you. Not wanting to accept and tackle the challenge that's happening doesn't free you. In a certain sense it makes you more vulnerable because you're kicking and you don't want to understand and you don't want to move within what's happening with you. The Gullis could come in their time in the time of the people that accepted it the simcha it didn't come. this is basically the same idea with Yaakov <coughs> Yaakov lived through many many Tsars in his life and every single one of his Tsars was a personification of a gullus when he came to the last one and the worst Tsaras Yosef 22 years thinking that his son was dead he had many questions to ask a lot of questions in fact he couldn't control himself and he said Nistere me Hashem. the ways of God are completely hidden from me he had a question and when he finally went down to Egypt and he saw that not only was Yosef alive and not only that was Yosef was a king but Yosef was a tzaddik in Mitzrayim he said I see today that as hidden as God's ways are God knows what he's doing. And when he embraced Yosef, Yosef cried on his shoulders and kissed Yaakov. And Yaakov was saying, Shema Yisrael, Hashem eleken Hashem echad. And the question that everybody asks is, if it was time to say Shema Yisrael, why wasn't Yosef saying it also? So the answer was, Yosef didn't have to say it, because Yosef saw what God was doing. Yaakov didn't see what God was doing. And when he came around to the point of recognizing, with hindsight possibly, that the ways as hidden as they are are great, and God knows what he's doing, he uttered the Shema Yisrael. It was at that point that Yaakov was free from all gullus. There was no Gullis that Yaakov could have anymore that would be a Gullis, because he knew that as hidden as God's ways were, he knows what he's doing. At that point was the change in his life. And the last 17 years of his life were years without Yusurim. He was above Yusurim already. He was completely above it already. He understood that as deep and as hard and as strong, and no matter what, God knows what he's doing. He's free of Gullus Lama Pasha now then we're finished. Lama Pasha Zustuma, why is the portion closed? The portion is closed for a simple reason a portion is left open when you can understand it. A portion is left open when you say digest. But if you can't digest anyway, what's the point of leaving you time to think? What's the point? Do we understand how Yaakov lived 17 years on the greatest spiritual plateau in such a defiled place as Egypt? There's no way of understanding it. What is the last verse in Vayigash? The Jew multiplied and became a nation in Egypt. Look at the last verse of Ayigash. Do we understand how a Jewish people can develop nationhood as a holy nation in such a place? A total mystery. What's the point of leaving space to understand it? Today we can't understand it. But Rabtzadeh HaKohen says we can't understand it. And it happened. And if it happened once without our understanding it, if we'll understand it or not, it's going to happen again. It will repeat itself again. And no matter how much tumor we're exposed to and how much we have to contend with in Gullis, we will develop from Gullis and we will multiply in Gullis and we will become a nation in Gullis from our Gullis is it is there an explainable way is there a sheer is there a lecture series is there a weekend to go to to understand necessarily how it happens no it's a parousia stuma it's a closed ununderstood chapter of history but as ununderstood as it was god didn't wait to make the ha- things happen and psdika HaKohen says as unexplainable as it is it happened and if it happened once it can and will happen a second time <coughs> we'll stop here. We'll take questions.